Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. Probably thought we were uh, we we're done, but no, <laughs> no. We're, we're coming back. <laughs> uh, this is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, are you trying real hard to be the shepherd? I, I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> and it, it ain't easy, Luke. It ain't easy. <laughs> I certainly don't want to imply that you are the tyranny of evil men. But I, I like to think not. I, <laughs> but I found that line to be the most memorable. Maybe one of the most memorable yeah. lines of the movies. I'm trying. I'm the tyranny of evil men, but I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. I think one of my favorite ones that was actually quoted quite a lot uh, in my last couple of months of my life mm. was, "Well, let's not start sucking each other's dicks yet." <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good one too. Actually, I was my. Uh, for any long-time listener, you know that I ask David a very serious question at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> Pretty much. And I uh, I was wavering between the shepherd one and the, uh, like, how many years would you keep that watch up your ass? Yeah, your oh, I do not like that scene. That was an uncomfortable scene. Yes. Uh, today we are doing the 1994 film Pulp Fiction, written and directed by Tar- uh, Quentin Tarantino. And this is our first Tarantino, if I'm not mistaken. It is. And uh, it's interesting because I'd say Tarantino is probably in my pantheon of the greatest directors oh, sure. of all time. Uh, certainly had an undue influence on my cinematic journey. And I think his his style of storytelling is very unique and enjoyable. Actually, mm-hmm. the first Tarantino I ever watched was with you in Nelson in your bedroom with oh, some of your okay. friends. Do you remember which one? Yeah, it's a Reservoir Dogs. Right, yes. And uh, I was it was probably the most violent movie <laughs> sure. I'd ever seen up to that point in my life, I think. I, I, was, I must have been quite young. Do you I remember mean. what year? No, but no. I was, I didn't, I don't think I visited, I didn't visit Nelson after I was like 12 or 13, maybe. Maybe okay. the last time I was 14. So I think it was it was when I was younger. But Yeah, it must have been probably like maybe 2002. That was also when like you introduced me to Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, and wow. One of the bands that yes, I... Yes, yes, I, I do remember this. Yeah. And then I think Creed. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, well, you introduced me to the, Creed. Back yeah. when... Uh, Kazaa. <laughs> Let me say. <laughs> yeah. Let me say. But I think, and I think even... Uh, hopefully not telling tales of little school here, but I, I think even your dad got a little bit mad at us for that one song, One Last Breath. Yes, because it was about suicide. He, he yeah, said. yeah, yeah, or yeah. Or like flirting with suicide. Or, yeah, he, yeah, he didn't like that very much. <laughs> wow, what a good memory. <laughs> what yeah. a good dig. That yeah. was, uh, so that was the first Tarantino I ever watched. Mm. And then uh, again, my friend Kendall kind of yeah. introduced me to the to his work. I, it was funny because I think we may have talked about this before, but I never thought of movies as their director. Mm. until I got to university because it was just 
I don't know. It was just not a categorization I ever made. Maybe well, the, and it was never marketed that way. Really, no, right? No. Like it's, um, it's kind of an insider thing if you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think it's become more common to talk about directors and how mm-hmm. much you like directors, but I maybe it was well, also my upbringing. Harkening back to a movie we did once, Gladiator. I remember when that movie came out. It wasn't marketed as a Ridley Scott epic. No, it was just an epic. Whereas <laughs> now, like things are 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 marketed as the new Nolan film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, like we're a, recording this while Tenet is in theaters. Yes, which I did see. Oh, uh, I have haven't seen yet. It? Okay, no, not well, yet. We can't talk we about can't it. Can't talk about it then. But it's not just the new big movie. It's no, the it's new, the new big Nolan, Christopher big, Nolan exactly, movie, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's an interesting cultural shift. It is, and and I so I, I don't know if I guess Tarantino wasn't that way, but he's definitely become that way. Mm. Um, the new Tarantino film is kind of right. what you hear. I mean, the yeah. most recent one to come out is obviously uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh-huh. a personal favorite of mine. Yeah, I would say actually, Pulp Fiction was the movie that did that for Tarantino. It was his second film. Reservoir Dogs being his first. Okay, hopefully the purists out there don't <laughs> skewer me for missing some the other Jackie Brown <laughs> some... or something. Well, no, but that no, movie was, was like Jackie after. Yeah, that was like ninety six or ninety seven, right. I think. So, Reservoir Dogs was actually my probably still is my favorite Tarantino movie. It's the first one I saw. I had a collection of DVDs when I was in my teens, and that was one of them. I didn't even have Pulp Fiction, so I actually don't think I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time until maybe university as well. Right, which yeah. is kind of weird to think about, because uh, it came out when we were so young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I would have been seven, and you would have been five. Would you call it a cult classic? I would, except that I think it's gotten too big, right, to be a cult classic. Like it, it would be using the word cult kind of ironically <laughs> to yeah. call Pulp Fiction. I would call it a mainstream classic, classic now. Of a genre that wasn't mainstream when it came out. Okay, I like right. That. Like I yeah. think the, the whatever genre Pulp Fiction fits into, it now like it's not niche. No, right. Like if you see a weird movie now that's kind of like so offbeat, you have nothing to really like. There's hard to see the pattern. You're like, well, that's kind of like Pulp Fiction, I guess. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, true. so it's so so different in that way. So uh, I just want to also say a little bit, kind of nostalgically, I guess that this is actually our first anniversary episode. True. So we're recording this on uh, September 6th, 2020, and we launched Really True Fiction on September 7th. So depending on when this comes out, I mean, obviously you could be listening to this anytime, and this is a totally irrelevant (laughs) thing to you, but um, we've actually been, we've taken a little break. David, you've been out of town for work, and so I think it's been about six weeks since we last recorded an episode. And so I just think it's so fitting that we're back into this basically at our anniversary. I mean, it's a leap year, so it is 365 days ago, (laughs) so it generally is a year. And uh, yeah, I just, I feel like we're going to record a kind of shorter little anniversary reflection for anyone that's interested, and that'll be coming up probably simultaneously with this episode, so look for that. But also just kind of, I wanted to say a big thank you to you for indulging in this adventure with me it's been uh, taking six weeks off of this podcast basically like no recording no editing no production still like talking about it to people but I just I've really realized how important it's become to me is this podcast and it would be impossible without you so I'm thanks David (laughs) well no I I really enjoyed it too I, I I said to a few people uh recently that I think the last year of my life has been the most transformative of my life and I think that this podcast played a big role in just 
being a more reflective person. Yeah, well, we'll probably go into this more in that, in yeah, that reflection exactly, piece, yeah. but uh, obviously talking about stories from the lens of like how they can affect your life in a real way, it'd be almost impossible to believe slash slightly hypocritical if it changed us not at all <laughs> true true <laughs> right? true true it's like uh so yeah uh, it's integrated i think in our lives in that way and it's been so nice and so i'm excited that we get to do such a such a weird awesome movie for our anniversary episode it feels kind of like awesome like it seems appropriate for us it feels like a good really true fiction yeah movie. like yeah. I, I, if 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 there are two words that anyone ever used for really true fiction was weird and awesome, I would be so happy with that <laughs> <laughs> like a description. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. <laughs> and then just before we jump in, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's a listener. I've been having some some really awesome conversations with people about it recently, and that's been making my heart lighter. And so if if this is a podcast you enjoy or you like, please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes. Uh, you'll get notifications for new episodes. We have a uh, Facebook page that you can search and like so that you'll get posted there for new episodes. If you feel like it, we would really appreciate a five-star rating if you feel like it deserves that, but whatever rating you feel it deserves and a review, because if you are a fan of Really True Fiction, that's the best way for the podcast app's algorithms to move us up the charts. And if you feel so inclined, just tell your friends about us. Uh, word of mouth is a really powerful form of messaging. We really love making this show, and we just continually are hoping to grow it, so... If any of that appeals to you, we would really appreciate it. And additionally, I wanted to give a shout out to another podcast that I haven't started, but I participate in with a couple of friends named Billy and Alex called Nothing to Fear. And this one is a specifically horror uh, podcast where the three of us, we have a little opening segment where we talk about a horror movie we're going to watch, and then we watch the movie and then we record our thoughts after it and it's like it's kind of cool because it's similar to this but different and it's a little bit more review based so that it's been kind of cool to kind of tickle that part of my brain and horror is a genre I've never really liked not because I don't think they're I just think so many horror movies are bad movies regardless of how scary they are or not you know yeah the, the storytelling yeah. is often oh really the cheesiness poor. of the uh, acting yeah. terrible dialogue bad script unbelievable circumstances so it's been cool to kind I think of, of horror as like the the fast food of cinema oh sure for well, sure. actually no romantic comedies are probably the fast food of cinema well maybe cinema. maybe horror is maybe the... maybe one is like a burger king and the other is a mcdonald's <laughs> right well yeah <laughs> yeah maybe maybe horror is um some form of junk food like yeah. potato chips or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Snacks. So, but I have to say, it's been really nice to think a little bit more objectively about horror movies and, and kind of like from a more, you know, uh, Ebert and Siskel type of perspective on them. Right. Which is a little different than what we do here, but mm. it's just a different exercise that I've been really enjoying. So if you like hearing me at all, which probably not gonna <laughs> not gonna hang my head on that one but if you like horror movies you like listening to three friends banter about a movie and then kind of talk serious about it but not at the same time uh the nothing to fear podcast is available on all streaming platforms and podcast platforms and so and actually just as a little teaser coming up next month which is a spookier month we're gonna have our well i shouldn't say it'll be our first guest because i don't know if we'll have a guest before then but 
uh, we are planning on having guests on the show, and so we're definitely. Yeah, I think I think year two is going to be a lot about uh, having. We have a lot of friends who really like stories as well, and I think uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be pretty cool to to branch out into the guest yeah. uh, genre of podcasting. Yes, exactly. We have a we have a foundation here. We've, yeah. we've built something. So I've been approached a few times by a few different people about being a guest on the show, which is yeah, awesome. Me, me I as love well, that. So, I love yeah, that idea. It's great. It's so anyway, great. Uh, Billy will be a guest with us for a. Stephen King novel, our first, is our, our first, first Stephen, Stephen King? King. Yes, yeah. it will be. So that'll be our spooky one. So be on the lookout for that. So anyway, thank you for listening to all of that. Uh, yes, Pulp Fiction. Do we want to do a plot rundown? <laughs> it oh, seems almost impossible. I don't know if we can do a plot rundown. <laughs> if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, uh, a I don't believe you because you're listening to uh, us shitheads. And so like <laughs> talk about the, Pulp Fiction, the overlap yes. of people who listen to this show and haven't seen Pulp Fiction has to be real low. But for those <laughs> who haven't, I recommend watching it. It is Tarantino esque, so it's violent and it's crude and it's in a lot of ways kind of horrible, actually. <laughs> but yeah. in a in a very stylistic manner that is palatable. So very rough skeletal explanation. It's a movie told out of time, so the different sections of the movie are not chronological to the story going on in the movie. So for example, the beginning of the movie starts in this diner and the end of the movie is in the diner uh, with a bunch of the characters. We get a long segment with Jules and Vincent who are John Travolta and uh, Samuel Jackson. And then we get the Butch, AKA Bruce Willis section, but that's actually way after everything we see true oh, oh no sorry well, when we get no, the we get of. the vincent and the and the mia section which yeah. is uma thurman and but that happens way before the bruce willis section but there's like a, a conversation with bruce willis and vincent vega or i'm gonna be doing this all the time yeah. john triple the characters and the and the and the um actors names are so interesting yeah, i mean there's a lot of iconic actors oh totally this, yeah 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 film. yeah bruce willis john travolta samuel jackson ving rames uma thurman harvey keitel uh, even Quentin Tarantino himself makes a cameo. Yes. This is common for him. And probably well, a few others. And I think others. it's interesting. Steve, Busce- Steve Buscemi has a slight role in the... He's a waiter in Jack yeah, Rabbit Yeah, that's Slims. right. That's yeah. right. I, uh, I, I, yeah, that's Fargo. He's in Fargo, right? Yeah, he's in yes, Fargo, yeah. and he's he was also in um, Reservoir Dogs. Yes, he was Mr. that's Frank. right. He's Basically, what I'm trying to say is that I don't actually really want to give a plot rundown of this movie because no. trying to do that would ruin it. This is such a... Bizarre, story-driven, and character-driven well, this is art movie. House. This yeah. is like this is Tarantino. There's, I think, there's a reason that uh, really prominent actors and actresses love being in Tarantino films too. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt. Like people want to be in Tarantino films, mm-hmm. whether it's Django Unchained or you know Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What we're really seeing is people recognize people who love film recognize the genius of Tarantino. Oh, for sure. And they want to be a part of it. And so that's why I think we see such high quality actors and actresses in these films. Mm-hmm. But I agree that I don't think the plot rundown is necessarily <laughs> the most interesting part of the In fact, the plot may not be even important to this film. Well, it's also just kind of um nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a you, the opening kind of title section of Pulp Fiction is pulp you know which yes. is just a shapeless morass of well something. and an interesting <laughs> thing about tarantino himself is he he longs to make 
beautiful entertainment that you can enjoy and his in his own words and walk away and never think about it again mm-hmm. which is if you think about it kind of the opposite of what we do with this podcast <laughs> yeah but i think it's uh maybe a testament to the beauty of what he creates that people do talk about it all the time all my favorite scenes in this movie as far as the narrative goes happen on accident yeah yeah <laughs> like all the best scenes of this movie in the narrative are just accidents yeah they're not like anything the characters plan they just happen to them and then they take up 20 minutes of screen time and you're just like what the fuck <laughs> this was not where i was expecting yeah. this to be going right no, it's true and so yeah just listening to I-, I listened to some other podcasts and when pulp fiction came out just how it was so different than any other movie a podcast we've mentioned before on this one and and my favorite one ever very bad wizards they have one episode called pulp fiction versus big lebowski oh where they talk about like which of those two is more bizarrely unique and special to the hosts i would and they split down the middle one of them chooses ends up choosing pulp fiction the other one ends up choosing big lebowski for me personally i think of those two i would have to be a big lebowski person but it's like one in one a right (laughs) like pulp fiction is i think so we're gonna split hairs on it i would probably be on the other side of that actually even though i i do really like i think some of the quotations in the big lebowski are better mm-hmm. but overall they're, overall they're, cinematography they are very acting, similar in the, in the sense that they're so bizarre yeah <laughs> right like there's such yes. bizarre movies with non-plot things happening that are memorable that i i can see the comparison yeah right like the um uh, they're probably in a, in a. I don't know. Like, do you think Pulp Fiction is Tarantino's best film? Like, what's your what's your favorite? Well, I, I I mean, I was thinking about what you when you said that Reservoir Dogs was your favorite, mm. and I mean, I've always said that Reservoir Dogs is my favorite, and a lot of that I think is nostalgia and also your first encounter sure. or something. I really enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Actually, Django Unchained is a is yes. another great yeah, yeah, film. Yeah. I didn't like Hateful Eight as much. No, I thought that was a bit of a swing and a miss. That wasn't his best one. And Glorious Bastards was really a fun teenager film. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it came out when I was like late teens as well. And like, it's just one of those badass, like you know, blood and gore and badass. Yeah, it's funny how Tarantino has a couple of these just awesome revisionist history films. Hey, yes, he <laughs> like he likes revisionist history. It yeah. seems. It so it was fun. So yeah, I. I I but I I would say this is not my favorite, but mm. I think it's the most iconic. Sure, for sure. I think when you know the day that Tarantino is either not making films or has passed on, I think this will be the movie most associated with him. Yes, right. It's the kind of it's his breakout album. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then it's so. the, it's the one that stands the test of time. Yeah. too. You and- rewatch it, and it's still. It still shocks you. From a mainstream perspective, I think every other film he makes is compared to this one. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I'd agree. So Jules Winfield, or Winifield, I can't remember, is Samuel L. Jackson's character. And he is head and shoulders my favorite character in this movie. He's the best character (laughs) in this movie, for sure. He's the most complex. He's the most interesting. Um, he's, He's the one that's most reflective on his own situation. He's also probably the most badass. Oh, Okay, yeah, that's actually my very first note <laughs> is that scene at the beginning where they're in the apartment and he's just toying with all those guys, hey? Like talking about the burgers and the drinks and it's like this guy is such a mensch. <laughs> like yeah. He's yeah. he's a he's a different category of person than any that those three or four guys in the apartment have ever dealt with before, right? Like he's just so much more hard-nosed, so much more capable and competent and not 
like he it's funny because he's not like he doesn't have a sense of humor but he knows when to be serious and that scene where he just shoots the guy on the couch to see what it'll do to the other guy's concentration is like okay this is a different category of person that we're dealing with and you know, you know this is the kind of guy who's he's like he's a cold-blooded killer i mean it reminds me a little bit of fargo um sure the the hitman guy what was oh his name oh again? in season one yeah season one season sorry. one yes. the the billy bob thornton's character yes. Yes. Lauren Malvo. Exactly. But I feel like he was more psychopathic than Jules is. Yeah, Jules seems to have a conscience. Mm-hmm. It's just a very warped conscience. And he has much more of a conscience than Vincent, who doesn't seem to care about anything. <laughs> um, That's why their dialogues are so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're... they're um... Well, I mean, and we start off with the with the amazing dialogue between the two of them oh about the gosh. difference between a foot rub and eating someone out. Yeah. And whether they're, you know, categorically the same. And he's like, they're not even the same sport. So my favorite, <laughs> I can't, obviously I can't remember verbatim, but that the line was like, there's a big motherfucking difference between giving a man's woman a foot massage and, and putting your mouth on the holy of holies. It's like, holy shit. Yeah, like, I, but can But Vincent is also, uh, he's a smart ass. And so he, sure. his response of, would you give a man a foot rub? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Like, and then immediately it kind of, it takes Jules off his game a little bit and but makes Jules Well, that's part of what this on. movie does, though, is that it it lets, as the audience, it lets our guard down as to what these two guys are capable of in that early, in those early scenes. Yes. Right? Before they actually, like, before Jules shoots that guy on the couch, you know, there's they even walk up to the, this is such a weird thing in this movie, but it's just so perfect for Pulp Fiction. They walk to the door, they're like, oh, we're a little early. So they, <laughs> they walk, walk away, the hall, have a little longer convo, and then <laughs> yeah, come back. Yeah. Like, just who cares that they're early, right? Yeah. But they're consummate professionals. So, <laughs> so we they, said we wouldn't be here till seven. We're not so coming in till arrive. seven. I think what's so interesting, I mean, we could go on and on about all of his great lines, like the towel I used didn't look like no maxi pad. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. why am I on brain detail? <laughs> and I just like how he cares so much about like respecting his friend's home. Yeah. Whereas Vincent's like, we're yeah. like cold blooded killers. Why do we care about his wife coming home and being mad at him? And yeah. And uh, yeah, but no, Jules cares about these things. There's a, there's a code of honor among thieves, right. right? So that the big divergence, I suppose, philosophically in this movie between Vincent and Jules is represented in that scene where they, miss all the bullets miss them right the guy the, th- the fourth guy jumps out of the bathroom or wherever he's Shoots hiding four or five times yeah. or and, three at least and like at both of them and just misses both of them and then jules jules interprets that as an act of god and thus he needs to change his ways and vincent says it was a it was a, a freak accident a freak accident and i think wow what a what a bedrock difference of opinion philosophically yeah. right so yeah what did you think about i guess either what you think about it or just their responses to it well it is interesting right how i've been reading and listening to a lot of stoics lately i think listeners of the podcast would know my particular interest in rome and then right. I, and in uh, the gladiator episode we talked a lot about marcus aurelius or not a lot but we did mention him and i've been thinking about just how powerful our relationship with events is oh okay and how we perceive them versus what we are in control 
over how we perceive events. Mm -hmm. And we see in this particular context, I feel like Jules is taking an active role in his perception of the event. Sure. And Vincent's taking a passive role. Right. And whether or not God intervened or not, I think is, is largely irrelevant to what they're taking from that event. Like what we're seeing from Jules is that he's realizing maybe the error of his ways and seeing this as a second chance to maybe reform himself. And we have that beautiful monologue at the end mm-hmm. where he's, well, first he quotes the Ezekiel passage right. at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and, then he, and then he quotes it again at the end. And, and I love his, let's call it a commentary. And also, as an aside, maybe the greatest delivery ever in the history of cinema is Samuel L. Jackson delivering those lines. Yeah. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't go too far. He isn't over dramatic or dramatize it, but he also doesn't downplay the significance of the words. But I like his, let's call it a commentary on that passage at the end where he's like, you know, we could, we could interpret it this way. Mm-hmm. And he's like, or I would like to interpret it this way as, you know, I'm the righteous and, and, you know, the world is evil mm-hmm. and I'm protecting you, the weak. He's like, but, but let's be honest, like, I'm the tyranny of evil men. You're the weak <laughs> and I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Yeah. And, 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 and he wouldn't have had so that insight. much tension in that scene because yeah. you've watched a lot of people just die. Right. Throughout the throughout the two and a half hours. Uh, sorry, up the, to it. the scene in the diner at the, the end? At the end. Yeah, yeah. And and then he lets them go <laughs> and he even gives fifteen hundred dollars to this guy. Yeah. And he's like, I'm buying your life. Mm-hmm. So going back to what is like what's happening here, well what he has done is he's taken an event in his life mm-hmm. and he's used it to better himself. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. To stop being what he was, it's to stop doing the things he didn't, you know, maybe like about himself and to go from being the tyranny of evil men yeah to the shepherd yeah 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 uh, and i i and, he, and like as far as the narrative is concerned he needed that event yes. to spark it even though he was kind of it seemed like he was trending that way maybe this was like the spark that actually ignited his desire to do that yeah and and, and more than that I, I think this speaks to the question of when that event occurred i think we could do that with anything in life Right is what is what is the difference between Vincent and Jules? Mm. Jules is a aware, awake person mm-hmm. who, when encountered with something in his life that he finds startling, yeah, analyzes it, asks himself what it means for him, right? Does some serious internal renovations based on external stimuli. But the the beauty of it is, and this is why I bring up the Stoics is. He didn't have control over that event, and mm-hmm. neither him nor Vincent are claiming to have participated in any way in that event right. to to have the outcome. Uh, he doesn't say, I was a righteous man, and therefore I was protected by mm-hmm. God. And Vincent doesn't say, you know, well, you know, I dodged those bullets, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Neither of them are, are, they're both passive recipients of an external stimuli, Yeah, and then what they do with that stimuli is actually what determines <laughs> the outcome even in the movie, I would argue. Right. Um, as, as another aside, it reminds me of another great little story that in the This Is Water speech that David Foster Wallace gives, he gives the story of the atheist and the believer up in Alaska who, one, like the atheist survives after praying. He's like, oh no, those were just some that's Inuit who came and saved yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like the same idea. It's like Jules is interpreting 
the event one way and Vincent is interpreting a different way, but they're both not saying they did anything for that event. Right. Which is interesting. They're yeah. just, they're, they're, they're honestly doing what I think we should all do. Cause I've, what happens so often in life is something will happen and we will play the victim to it. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll be like, Oh, this external event occurred in my life and woe is me. I'm mm-hmm. so, everything's going wrong. I'm so unfortunate. Why does everything always go wrong for me? Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. You can get into that mindset. And I think this is with anything, right? It's, it all comes down to how you view your, your own existence. Oh, totally. And if you can, and if you can take the, let's say the Jules perspective of feeling blessed mm-hmm. and fortunate and almost divinely taken care of, mm-hmm. I think that's a much better outlook on life then uh, everything is just random. Yeah, I agree. My thought, though, is, okay, does Jules or anyone need to sincerely believe that it was a divine intervention to make that change? No, I, I don't think so at all. Uh, um, but Well, like, as far as Pulp Fiction goes, it doesn't really matter what Jules actually believes. Well, and, 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 <laughs> it's, also and it's out, kind of funny. Outside of Pulp Fiction, I don't think it needs to... I don't. I don't think you need to call it divine. No, I agree. Um, That's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. um, I think given our backgrounds, though, like our life backgrounds, and and growing up in families that, to one degree or another, did believe in divine intervention or at least divine presence. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always thought, okay, so if I'm going to critique what I see in both Jules and Vincent, I mean, it doesn't actually have to be what the two of them believe, but the motif that I critique is that Vincent is maybe right in the facts, but incorrect in the way he would respond to them. And Jules might be wrong in fact, but responds to it correctly. And I would say of those two, I'd rather be Jules, right? But of those two, I'd rather the third option where I can figure out how to be right about the facts and then still respond like Jules does to them. Right. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Like, I think you'd you'd rather not uh, accredit something to something mystical. I think is what you're saying. Well, it just it can be a hindrance or an obstacle into other forms of life that are worth pursuing. That if you go too far, it can be a category error. Like, I don't. I don't know how relevant the facts of the matter are when you're trying to figure out your relationships, but it can be a little bit important, right? And and so, like, what's interesting about Vincent in that scene is that he, he, and this is his character flaw, I think, is that he is too passive in the world, right? Like, yes. he is much too passive. Uh, like, the scene, it really gets augmented where he's on drugs. Yes, like he's well, that's just, what I was going to say, yeah. He's trying to escape. Uh, you you just can't ever imagine Jules taking the drugs. And I think what's interesting is that if we're going to, like, as humans, slice out the and, and continue making smaller and smaller slices away of things that maybe we don't need. Maybe we, and if we need them, we may need them in a different way or need to conceive of them different, is that, yeah, I really believe that Jules responds correctly to that event I think that many people in history respond correctly to events that they can't explain, but that response correctly, I think, can be just as easily done incorrectly because the interpretation can be just that. It can be whatever you want it to be. But isn't that just the nature of everything? Like, I, I guess my my struggle has always been with, these, with this question. Mm. I 
reject the notion that we can understand something on a factual level. Well, fair enough. I right? mean, and I guess, and so, well, all th- I see all things as interpretation. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, no, but but there's no jewels might add on an extra level of interpretation that is just I would say potentially unnecessary, which is the divine intervention. Maybe um, it's necessary for him though. But this is what I'm asking. Maybe maybe he wouldn't feel any need to change like it's interesting because if we look at the worldview of vincent mm-hmm. like fundamentally he just doesn't believe that there's anything yeah and, yeah, so, and so his his response to that to that belief system is a desire to well, escape except it's well he has animalistic beliefs well, i don't know if they you could call them beliefs but well, like, and even i would say like sociological beliefs uh, he, like he's he cares a lot about honor he knows if me cares about dies. loyalty under his yes. care he's dead meat because survival's of important <laughs> Marcel's wallace you know? right but apart from that, he doesn't have any, let's call them existential mm-hmm. truths that he right. seems to be pursuing. And Whereas we see with Jules that he does, well, we don't even know what he believes, right? He says, he says when he's quoting that, he's like, I just thought it was something badass to say right before I killed people. Well, and also he's kind of um, a little bit pissed off that obviously... Vincent accidentally shot that guy in the back seat. Like he's like that would mm-hmm. piss anybody off. But he's he's kind of like sticking up for himself too. Like you can tell that Jules isn't a pushover even to his own boss. Yeah. Like you can tell that. Well, even when he's talking to um, uh, Marcellus Wallace, right? He's yeah. like, "I need you to tell me this," and he says, "I'm telling you this." So those little clues along the way suggest to me that Jules was already temperamentally disposed to a better path. I think because of his self respect and his like presence in his own life and the life of others and like how important the virtue of that was like for whatever fucked up way that would be for gangsters and that kind yeah. of thing yeah and so like i i think with him it's interesting it's so interesting because i don't i think that he because of the culture he's in maybe he uses the language of divine intervention to explain but like for me personally i can even i can use the language of oh, I read that essay by Emerson and I felt called to something better. Right. Without necessarily attributing it to anything transcendental or supernatural. Now, this, I hope, is a point that gets less and less important over time. Right? Like, I hope pointing that out becomes so unnecessary just because sometimes, and and granted, less and less in the Western world anyway, that same reasoning can be used for terrible things. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I'm all about removing facades for people with bad agendas to have power. Well, I think, but you've mentioned this before, I forget which episode it was, where you said that one of the things you've realized is you thought something was religious, but it's actually just human nature. Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't really matter whether it's religious or not. The tendency to misuse whatever orthodoxy. Sure. And and, that, and that's never going to change, I don't believe. There's, like, humans are tribalistic. And... But do you think it, it can become more tempered as it becomes more known? Well, it certainly isn't right now, I guess I no, would say. No, I, I would also be... That's interesting, though, because that could be a function of our media, too. But I think it might just be a function of human psychology. Sure. I, I at will... least the easiest path to power is almost always fear. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right? And I agree it, about and that. And it doesn't really matter whether it's fear of eternal damnation, fear of personal harm. Yeah, of course. I mean, or, pre- or fear of, um, of, of, you know, what was the great fear of many of the, you know, ancients? It wasn't death. 
it was actually um, being cast out, mm-hmm. right? Being sure. Yeah, well, that's the word. Exiled. Right? Yeah, being exiled, right? And well, even today, like social. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think exiles. a lot of. I mean, what is being canceled? Mm-hmm. If you right. don't care about what society thinks of you, you're certainly not going to care about being canceled. But you care about being canceled because being canceled means being ostracized. Although hilariously, the timeline to like rebut this stuff is not you know the eight months to write your own tract and pamphlet. No, now no, it's, it's like the next day. No, it's tweets and so part of the issue is that there's a saturation. There's like a bandwidth issue for people's attention that I do think is difficult. However, one of the greatest breakthroughs educationally, I think, in my own life has been people being able to speak kind of like analytically about things, right? Like even this other podcast I've been doing, the Nothing to Fear one, these movies are a lot less scary when I know I'm going to be analyzing them. So I'm looking at them a bit different. And I would say that I wasn't always that way. Like, I actually think a large part of my university education made me more analytical. So it was being exposed to different ways about thinking about things I thought I already knew. And I think that that is also an element of human nature. I, I agree. And I, I mean, I think it's one of the... But the, I really do like this dichotomy between the animal and the enlightened right. being, mm-hmm. right? The consciousness versus subconsciousness mm. if, if we want to go that far but you look even uh, let's take jules he is obviously aware yeah he's thoughtful mm-hmm. he he is truly living in the now and experiencing the moment whereas on the flip side vincent is avoiding consciousness yes avoiding awareness trying yeah yeah well in in the uh, we brought him up already david foster wallace in his schema jules is the hero and vincent is the villain, not because of anything ethical, but because of conscious versus unconscious. Exactly what you're saying. Like, this is his total, like, this is such a great, this is why I love this podcast. We can make these comparisons. Like, Jules is David Foster Wallace's life before death person. Yes. And Vincent is his... Death before death person. Yeah, yeah. death before death person, right? I think that's such a, what a great connection there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it seems so obvious. And... I guess Pulp Fiction, not intending to be this deep of a movie, makes their friendship kind of funny and their uh, but, but also makes funny. the dialogue such a good compare and contrast. But right, who dies? Vincent. Vincent dies in this yeah. movie. Not well, we don't know, but Jules mm. doesn't die in the movie. No, as far as we can tell, right? And it's it's kind of because Vincent. It's also because Vincent isn't being, you know, conscious and aware. He's and... puttering along. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, I, I actually, the scene in Butch's house I want to talk about when we talk about Butch, but from Vincent's point of view in that scene, he unconsciously lets his guard down. Yes. It's not a good idea. What if What if Butch shows up? Yeah, but he's <laughs> like, he's in the he's bathroom. Pro- I was thinking about this when I was watching that scene. I was like... He probably thinks there's no way Butch is going to show up because yeah. he knows we're here. He's like, I'm just here because I'm told to be here. Well, you're even giving him slightly more credit than I'm giving him in this section. I'm saying I don't even think it occurs to him that Butch could show up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right? That's it's what not I'm even, saying. It's not, but it's not even a weighing of likelihood. Right. No, <laughs> right? no. It's, it's like, like a, well, he would never come here. Yeah. I don't even think Vince thought about Butch until he walked in, right. opened the door and saw him there. Right? Right. But that's the unconscious thing. And so... Bring it all the way back to that scene with the bullets, which is so awesome, and then the subsequent scene with Jules. Uh, yeah, Jules is kind of the, the 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 mental and and fortitudinal hero of the movie, which is probably why he's our favorite character. I think. Yes, he's like a 
archetype in a very non-archetypal movie. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I I just I am so pro the idea of paying attention to what happens to you. Yeah. Right. Well. Now, whatever Jules needs to attribute it to is kind of how I feel about how whatever anyone needs to attribute to anything that makes them conscious. Right. Like another thing that does this because. Um, I listen to Dax Shepard's podcast a lot. He talks about AA. AA makes you have to be conscious about what you're doing. Now, they even couch it in religious language, well, which is but, but everything, people, you know, but. that uh, to me, that's the great battle of all of existence, like all of consciousness mm-hmm. is, are you going to live observant in the present yeah. now mm-hmm. or are you going to distract yourself? And everything else is a distraction, mm-hmm. whether it's, even I find this with myself. Um, so often I will get consumed by the desire to succeed in some area or to accomplish some goal. And what will most of the, the driving force of accomplishing that goal be? It will be daydreaming about what it will be like when I accomplish that goal. Oh, yeah. And what is daydreaming fundamentally? I'm not saying daydreaming is evil, but I'm saying daydreaming is taking the moment you do have mm-hmm. and wasting it thinking about a moment you don't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you're not observant when you're daydreaming. Your eyes glaze over. You're thinking about something else. Well, we've talked about this a little bit before. Like, I, the best shift I ever had when it came to playing guitar was the moment I didn't care at all about thinking about how cool it would be to play guitar and switched it to how much fun it was to just do it. Yeah. Right? Like, it's the, the process. The, the, but the participating in it becomes the fun part. Yeah. As opposed to, and it's like, that's why although I have nothing against dreams or goals, maybe is a better way to put it, part of what I think can be really damaging to young people is to to, to have a, a quote like, follow your dream, full stop, nothing else after that. Follow your dream, but realize you you don't dream life. No, <laughs> like, yeah. And, and never, and quite possibly slash almost definitely the things you love the most will be the things that you can do in the moment. And that's what you will try to pursue if you are, I think this is what kind of what we mean by well-adjusted, because a well-adjusted person pursues things that don't maladjust them, right? Yeah. Like if you can imagine like a, an aligned bike, right? A well-aligned bike moves in such a manner that all its pieces are kind of synchronous with each other. And you can tell when a bike becomes unaligned, that's when problems start, yeah. right? And it's not like a big problem all at once. It's just like, oh, it's rubbing a bit or the brakes are, are going out a but bit. But then soon your wheels are need We need, we need an adjustment, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I, like these words aren't accidental in the way that we describe elements of our lives, right? And weirdly, Jules is a really well-adjusted person. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and that other line, what is significant is that I felt the touch of God. Yeah, that's something I relate to because I could say it like, I felt the touch of this author from this time. Like I just recently read Tale of Two Cities and there was a, there's the beginning of chapter three. I had to just read like three times over because of its thunderbolt connection to my heart on an element of the human condition. Now, if I was still in my Christian days, I would say, oh, that was God speaking to me through Dickens. Now I say that was an idea speaking to me through Dickens or whatever, right? Right. The source becomes less important than the effect, I think. But maybe part of that is what we were just talking about. Part of it is just existing in the now. Yeah. 
right it's Agreed. not it's not about some underlying theological principle or it doesn't have to connect to anything one of the things that's been said to me a lot over the last couple of months that i'm really trying to embrace is you don't need to analyze you just need to observe Ooh, interesting right you now need... what do you see the difference between those two things so an, an analysis is a, an attempt to explain mm. an observe uh, an observation is an attempt to describe oh okay and i think uh annie dillard probably definitely my top three favorite nonfiction authors of all time mm. all she does at- essentially is describe what's around her whether it's a mockingbird or a winter day, or whatever it is, she's just saying her thoughts upon those observations. And so much beauty and presence, and I think the word presence is so key here, to be present in a given moment, is awareness. and, Mm -hmm. and, And that's observation. And we actually see Jules doing this. He observes that they're eating breakfast. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he asks questions about where they're getting their breakfast. Although from. weirdly, they're eating burgers at like seven in the morning. I know there's there's some weird <laughs> stuff here. Like, a why are they doing this so early? Like, yeah. maybe they just knew yeah. they were going to be there. At that why time. are all these guys awake eating? Yeah, burgers? like who's awake at seven eating unless, a burger? Unless they stayed up all night. Yeah, maybe right. That's, Who knows? But they oh, seem more awake than you would. And the case, like, what's the case all about? We anyway, never find yeah. out. So, although inter- like, I, I think what was. I'm in, I'm projecting this onto this scene, but I think what's really cool is that it's kind of a lack of awareness or presence that puts Jules and Vincent in this trouble in the first place in that they don't do Text a sweep bathroom, of the apartment, yeah. right? Which, if they're on their game, maybe they do, but they're a little distracted by their conversation, maybe. I don't know. And so they get something that could be called, you know, cosmic mercy, let's say, or cosmic grace, in that they don't get hit. And their interpretation of that is just their interpretation of it. I like your point on how the difference of interpretation is the difference of Jules and Vincent, and we see how their paths diverge the rest of the movie. Because that scene happens before Vincent goes and meets with with Mia, before he goes to meet with Mia, Mm -hmm. before he has that evening with her, all of this occurs before that. Yeah, and before and like you can even just tell the way Vincent interacts with the wolf. Like he's just not he's not as well adjusted. No. He's got more hang-ups. He's got and he's blasé about things that he could be conscious about. So yeah, that's a great distinction. So yeah, I guess we could probably move on to Butch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Butch being Bruce Willis's character. Great opening scene with Christopher Walken and the watch up yeah. his ass. What what an iconic Pulp Fiction moment, that scene, hey? Yeah, because it's so intense and yet so vulgar mm-hmm. and yet emotionally gripping. And there's something so iconic about it being Christopher Walken's really bizarre style that presents the story. Yeah. He hit it the only place he could, his ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like just the way. And then I hit it up my ass yeah, for yeah. two years. Two years. So it's great that it sets up why he cares so much about this watch. The first thing, though, I, I feel about Butch is that, like, he starts with no emotional intelligence, right? Like, he gets so angry at, uh, I think her name's Fabian or Fabian, yeah, his girlfriend, for forgetting the watch. And that was my memory of it. So, like, before this rewatch again, my memory was always of Butch being this kind of unreflective asshole to his girlfriend. But I totally forgot that right away he's like... I didn't emphasize it to you. I'm really sorry. 
I should have told you how important. I should have even told you how important it was. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think about that little intro? I actually, I think the the interactions between him and uh, let's call her Fabian are are one of my favorite parts of the movie actually, Mm -hmm. Uh, because there's just this. She is this contrast of innocence and just. The I want a pot, <laughs> and and it's such an <laughs> intimate uh, relationship that they obviously have. There's the he clearly cares so much for her. Yeah, and the intimacy of you know her being in the bathroom, getting ready while he's showering, and then you know the the towel handoff. These are this is something that Tarantino's almost unprecedentedly good at. Yeah, is right. is taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary, reminding us of the extraordinary nature of 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 given moments. Mm-hmm. And just pulling them out, and I so like even how he has her refer to you know oral sex as you know using what does he say your mouth to give me what does she say your uh, mouth to give? for pleasure yeah mouth pleasure yeah, or something yeah, yeah. like like because she doesn't quite have the language down but <laughs> yeah that, that pretty, brings emphasis to that moment it's right? so funny eh yeah so it's interesting because we're in this highly intense emotional state with butch because mm. he's fleeing the mob he's just made a fortune and he killed he killed a man yeah like th- accidentally but still but uh, but yeah. still and and he's he's in this what i can only imagine is a highly adrenaline filled state of being mm-hmm. and then the only connection he has to his father mm-hmm. is forgotten and, and he's terrified that he's not going to be able to get it back because yeah. but then but then he's willing to risk his life his father who's a pow in a vietnamese war camp for what five seven yeah. five years before he died right exactly uh died of dysentery which right. is probably because of the watch if you think about it <laughs> well wouldn't who knows right well you know, maybe I mean, the watch was a blocker for a few <laughs> minutes anyway like who, who knows right but um <laughs> i just imagined I don't like, want to imagine if it. it's blocked for like a few extra minutes or seconds and then uh, yeah, jetpack. Like who knows? Right? Yeah. So I really like that was what on rewatch. I hadn't thought about that scene at all. Like the scenes you think about a lot in Pulp Fiction are the, the scene with the burger. At mm-hmm. least for me. Yeah. The scene in the diner when Mia. The scene in the basement. Yeah. Mia's whole, you know. Yeah. The, the overdose. overdose. Yeah. But that one was one I'd forgotten. I had, I had not given it any. Th- I'd even forgot about Butch. That's a character in a movie, right? Because <laughs> I don't think I watched this in like ten years. Right. I think it's a it's a testament to the to the ability that Tarantino has, how he makes you feel the affection between the two of them mm-hmm. so vividly, and she's she's just so feminine in her yeah, and uh, kind of like innocent and naive in like she. I get the sense that she doesn't know what kind of situation they're in. Like Butch has tried to he sheltered shielded, her a little bit, yes. yeah, from her from like how bad she would be treated if they got caught. Like she kind of knows people are after them, but whatever, we're gonna she's get gonna away. She's gonna have her fine. pancakes, and, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I just I thought it was it was a pleasant surprise to see how he was able to be emotionally mature again really quickly. Yeah, once he had his little fit in the room about it, and that actually. Um, leads us into that scene where he goes back to his apartment. And I love this scene. I I love this scene because I never even realized this until this particular rewatch. The reason he ends up seeing Marcellus Wallace in the crosswalk and running into him is because Marcellus looks like he's getting donuts or something. 
but obviously Marcellus was also at Butch's apartment. Yeah. Right? Because I never knew that. I just no, like, no. That's why it seems so yeah. random to me all the time. I was like, well, no, he's only driving like two blocks away. He just went out. So how did this work out for Butch? He walks into his apartment thinking he's fine. He doesn't see anyone. He sees the gun. He picks it up. The whatever toaster strudel pops. Vincent comes out of the bathroom. He kills him. And then he's driving and he sees Marcellus. He's feeling badass. He's like, I just. But all of that happens. It's just happenstance, right? Yeah. It's not. Which is like quintessential Tarantino. It's it's just like he walked into the house at the exact right moment for Vincent to be in the bathroom. He could have just as easily walked in five minutes earlier or five minutes later. He's not in the bathroom and he's got the gun. And then by that point, Marcellus would have been back. So any other time, there's two of them there ready to kill him. He just happens to pick that five-minute segment of time where Marcellus isn't there and Vincent put his gun down and is in the bathroom, right? Yeah. And I love this scene because it's like life isn't narrative while it's happening. No. <laughs> right? Life is happenstance often while it's happening. And then we retroactively put a narration on things we do, right? Yes. Yeah. However, in the moment, we are just as much of a pawn as... To circumstance as Butch's walking into his apartment that way. And I, and that was something about this movie, this watch, looking at it through like a really true fiction lens where I was just blown away at Tarantino's craftsmanship here, where he's like integrating into the story. You know what? Blind luck saved Butch here. Blind luck. <laughs> Repeatedly. Repeated, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, there isn't much more to that point than that other than I never saw it like that before. Right, it's like, oh, that's lucky. But so many movies, they just they they build the drama in a way that they stack up a narrative in a way that is unrealistic. It's fun to watch, but Pulp Fiction doesn't do that. It just says, oh, yeah, he walked and he got lucky, and then that (laughs) that just translates perfectly into the gimp scene. Yeah. Hey, give me your thoughts on the whole running like that the segment from running Marcellus over, running away. And then Butch has him dead to rights in the pawn shop. Yeah. Right? Like he's got the gun on him. And then the redneck says, you he's know, got, yeah, he's I got, got you. And then the whole, yeah. I don't know. Like, I just, I want to know. That whole scene is just scene. so that, like, it's very, <laughs> that to me, that's the most memorable scene from Pulp Fiction. Is the gimp. Scene. Is the gimp basement. Marcellus oh. Wallace Zed scene. Yeah. Because it's the like, most different of anything I've ever seen before. True, they they just kind of they just kind of throw, yeah, th- throw it in there, and it's like, yeah. what is the purpose of this? But I mean, my favorite moment in that is when Bruce Willis's character, so so Butch has, you know, he's escaped, he's punched the gimp, yeah, and now he is upstairs and he's about to leave, and then he's like, no, he can't leave Marcellus, he's like, right? I can't let like the the humanity of it right some things like, nobody deserves yeah and like even though this is a guy who's going to be hunting he, he expects he's going to be hunting him down for the rest of his life so potentially he sees an opportunity there that's also to clear yeah. the books with marcellus yeah so there is an element of self-interest in it however obviously marcellus wouldn't have survived this no with these two so he hears the screams and then there's that awesome like him picking his weapon yeah <laughs> right like he's got the chainsaw and the he's like thing. oh no and he sees the the i guess it's samurai, a samurai sword, sword yeah. which is obviously, which is obviously a nod to kill bill well a well a future nod yeah i mean probably kill bill is a it, spiritual continuance of that yes with the the bride having the sword but 
Yeah, I, I think that um, him going back to save Marcellus is kind of like one of the best parts of the movie, actually. Yeah, yeah it's like it's that little little uh, nod to humanity, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, some yeah, some things are too terrible to abide. And the Pulp Fiction way of just, this isn't a left turn in the story, right? No. Like, this is... Um, this is like a category thing where like, oh, you've just created your own description for how to change something that's happening in your movie. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen something like they say in Monty Python and now for something completely different. Yeah, so unexpected. I've never seen anything so completely different as that pawn shop gimp scene. Yeah, no, no. And, and with him coming back to save, I just think that it was, um, it was something so impressive in in butch you know yeah so anyway and i think it also gives him a sense of nobility that he's kind of been looking yeah. for mm-hmm. and also give, gives him the freedom and, and and marcellus isn't like oh you can totally hang out in la and let's be friends he's like no you fucked me but yeah, yeah. you also you know this is good enough yeah <laughs> for me to take you off the kill list yeah and get out of here and then you know in a movie full of iconic lines, one of them's got to be Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and then again, another thing I just remember from this, watching this again is um, they don't kill Zed. So there's like hours of torture in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Like, things are not going to be wow. good for him. Okay. So Mia, my memory actually has her being more significant in this movie than she actually ends up being. And she plays a very small role. It's actually way smaller than I thought. Although, and of course, her, probably your memory of that is because she's the front cover of the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever you see Pulp Fiction being sure. advertised, it's her there. And actually, they this movie does a cool little. There's a few like, what would you call them? Because this movie is told out of sequence, there are a couple scenes that bridge the timelines to like orient our attention back to when this is happening. And so one of them is the conversation Marcellus has with Butch and then Butch running into Vincent in the bar, which is way earlier than Butch's time sequence, but it lets us know about a pre-existing relationship potentially between Butch and Vincent and, and Butch and Marcellus, right? Another one is in the Butch segment when after in the movie, we've seen Vincent and Mia have Mia's overdose and Vincent saves her with the help of his friends. Yeah, the adrenaline. Yeah, the adrenaline shot. shot. Then Mia telling vincent thanks for dinner the other night in that part so it lets us know that this is well after or at least a few days after that other scene right anyway that's neither here nor there that's just interesting that she does that but her line because vincent tells her that the gossip is that that one guy got thrown off a building because he gave her a foot massage and her line is when you little scamps get together you're worse than a sewing circle (laughs) (laughs) now that's a funny way to talk about how gossip is annoying yeah hey yeah and no matter who you are maybe this is just a psa but like there's very little i find more boring than gossip yeah i don't know i'm kind of the opposite but like i'm working on it (laughs) (laughs) okay well maybe this could be a good we could do a slight digression on god like to me gossip is something like talking about irrelevant things that aren't my business about other people well, that, and, but, and, see, and even people I, I don't know about, like, because I don't think that what they were doing was gossiping, because it's actually very relevant to their situation. Sure, right? In fact, particularly relevant, and why it was brought up to Vincent. Yes, right? however, <laughs> that's almost certainly true, but it's never really explicitly stated that way. 
Like the no. way it's talked about in the film is that it's they're getting a little bit of a ticklish delight out of well, sort of. About but this. if you look at like because at one point Jules does ask Vincent, he says, "Why are you so interested in Marcellus's wife?" And he says, "Well, she he like he does explicitly say because he's having to go and take her out." Okay, yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. So maybe. Maybe Mia's annoyance then is a more general point, even though this specific case was... Or maybe it's just an offhanded, like, <laughs> diss, like a, like a small, like, backhanded, you know... Well, she's clearly annoyed that, that this was something... But it, do, it also doesn't discredit that, that it could have been true, I, guess I would so. say, right? Like, mm. she's, she's discrediting the story... But but she has a lot of reasons to discredit the story, I would mm. think. And also, like... Well, I believed her, though. I, like, yeah. she said it wasn't that. Right. I don't think she says it, what caused it. No, she doesn't. No. But, I don't know. I just... I think anyway, yeah. Go- gossip. So, there's. I think there's a difference between information... I mean, humans are gossiping creatures, right? Mm. We, we like to talk about other people. And there's different kinds of it, right? There's, in this case, when it has to do with your employment just happens all the time like i'm sure with your colleagues you talk about your bosses sure and in my case like definitely that even more so probably because you know there's there's just a you know position and title and and responsibility that these people have Mm. makes make them interesting but also make their decisions have impact on us then there's gossip malicious gossip which is you know also something that people enjoy doing a lot where it's like oh did you hear that so and so, you know, yeah, got like, pregnant, uh, or that so and so, you know, unsolicited is having a divorce, or or oh, I heard that blah blah is having a rough time, right? It's like these are interesting topics to humans for some reason because we're social creatures. I don't think you're ever going to get rid of something like that, but I think that the 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 question isn't do we talk about other people? The question is why are you saying negative things about other? Yeah, people? Yeah, and I mean, I think yeah, of course, and I think my my own personal like hypervigilance on this kind of stuff is like, okay, I want to be really conscious and clear about what is my business and what isn't. Yeah. And things that I think are definitely not my business. And this could just be a purely semantic thing, but the way I'm defining it is that things that aren't my business, I'm calling gossip. Right. And things that are, I'm not. And, you know, um, guarding that line is not exact, but it's also not total chaos either. Right, right. Right. And so like, yeah, those, the bosses who are making decisions that influence me, I have a harder time calling gossip just because like, but it can slide into that, right? Like that's the problem is that it's because the border can be porous sometimes the initial comment that is within the bounds of the legitimate criticism can slide into. Yeah. And then do you remember when they decided this thing, which like is maybe not anything to do with work and it's like a total... Well, and here could be another example of that is is when you fall into uh, Schadenfreude, 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 yeah. Schadenfreude, where you're actively taking glee, and I I fully admit to mm. doing this more than I wish I had, taking glee in the troubles of people that you do not like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that form of gossip is incredibly common and, and and actually just destructive because why are you focusing well so much time? Yeah, on it's that? funny. The temptation is so there. I can relate to it because even just maybe a week ago, week and a half ago, my multi-sport team was ready to play in the final, and we show up to the field where we're playing, and we're going to be playing kickball, 
and there's like this junior league baseball team playing on the diamond so it's like two teams of i think they're like eight or nine year olds playing against each other and then all the parents and everything so there's so many people here we're like oh are we at the wrong field no we're at the right field we had a permit they didn't so their organizer just decided they were going to go to this field and play we showed our permit as per like our organization in the city and their representative was like yeah we don't have a permit but we don't care we'll take the fine (laughs) And so we had to go move and it was just way shittier for us. And, and I've said it jokingly with beers after with my team, but I'm, I felt it too. Is like, I don't care if we get a refund. I just want them to get punished. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like that. Uh, now that's not gossip exactly, but the schadenfreude can definitely enter in. I just thought that was a humorous yeah. personal tale of that. <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, with gossip, I just, um, my feeling is that there's just more interesting things in life than the things other people do that aren't my business. Yep. yep. You know, now, and I understand gossip has a evolutionary basis in that um, when our tribes were, you know, 100, 150 people, you did need to keep tabs on everyone because one defecting cog in a tribe can really be disastrous. Yep. So it's important to know what's going on. So I get the, um, you know, the vestigial remnant of that in our psychologies today but like we're talking about being conscious and awareness i'm just disposed to things that are not other people's lives that don't involve me right (laughs) right and it's and and i'm saying like in a non-judgmental framing of it it's actually way more freeing and uplifting to not actually care what people do Yeah, outside and I, well, of my I own scope of them. One of my favorite uh, phrases is you're letting them live rent-free in your head. Yeah, exactly. Right? And it's like, again, you only have so much time. And your, your, your present moment is the only piece of existence you're guaranteed. Right. So why would you use that precious little time that you have mm-hmm. to, to obsess about another person? Well, and here's maybe another higher order version of this is that do you want to have your place in the group be that of the gossip. Like the person who brings, because because A, you're easily replaceable. So like your standing in your group then isn't anything specific to you, right? Yeah. And so you could potentially, if you're there always bringing up the dirt about other people's lives, you can never be sure if people actually care about you or just what you can tell them. True. Right now, maybe you don't care, and that's fine. I think I think deep down, the most people want most people want other people to want them around for like a specific to them reason, yeah, <laughs> not just a role that they can play in their lives. And that's why we feel unattracted to people who we feel are using us. Let's yes. say for yes. one reason or another. And I think it's an element of tragedy to be consistently being useful to someone who doesn't care about you for one reason or another that is is, a tragedy which is potentially and then and then knowing that and continuing on that path that's like really sad that's even worse yeah Yeah. i agree so yeah i mean i i I try to be (laughs) and this is such a buzzwordy corrupt term i try to be non-judgmental but i just think that there's so much opportunity cost to gossip yeah, that your I like head, that. Your head can be filled with other, perhaps more inspiring things. Certainly more uh, personally, personally, like furthering your own mm-hmm. development things. And do you have any thoughts on Mia? I thought it was really stupid of her to take strange drugs she didn't know anything about. 
She doesn't <laughs> seem like she's very thoughtful about these things. Yeah. Uh, okay, lesson, kids. If you find drugs in a gangster's pocket, don't snort them. Yeah, <laughs> that's an important lesson. It could be heroin. <laughs> Marcellus, and this is on losing... This is a conversation he has with Butch on losing ability. That's a hard motherfucking fact of life. Pride only hurts. It never helps. And I was like, man, he's kind of wise here. Hey, that whole speech he gives to that, Butch yeah. there. I mean, it is, it's a good speech. And of course... He's not entirely right in this case because it wasn't about winning that Butch didn't do what he was doing because he wanted to win. Mm -hmm. Butch did what he was doing because he wanted to make a lot of money. Yeah. I guess Marcellus just didn't really... I mean, Marcellus got outsmarted. Mm -hmm. But I agree with... I mean, pride is just an absolutely useless... I mean, how, how a person can be proud... Is a little bit beyond me a lot of the time. Like I, 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 and I've seen it in myself. I've been proud of myself, so I, I know it's possible. But when I look at myself, let's say in the mirror, mm. I say, "How can you, a little dust moat floating in the universe, <laughs> like a mortal soul, be proud? Like your significance is minuscule." So yeah, I guess Marcellus just kind of misapprehended. Butch, he should have assumed Butch was wanting the same thing he wanted, yeah. which was money. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, that's the thing. If you know a person's motivation, you can usually determine their actions. That's why it's actually quite funny. Yeah. In, in that, that he's completely misunderstood Mar- Butch. Yeah. And Marcellus, I mean, Marcellus himself is only kind of giving this virtuous advice to Butch so that Butch will go down and so Marcellus can make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. And so it's ironic that it's the same reason as him that butch outsmarts him it's like how did you not see that but yeah i I thought it was interesting it's like wow there's like some oddly good advice here and marcellus's line of um i just i love how he delivers nah man i'm pretty fucking far from okay (laughs) and then to zed i'm gonna get medieval on your ass (laughs) yeah um yeah He's a he's a good like presence in the movie, Marcel. Yeah, and I like how for the first I don't know three quarters of the movie you never see his face. Mm-hmm. The, the yeah. moment you see his face is actually when Butch sees him when he's crossing the road. That's the first time you see his face. Yeah, that's and also right. the bandaid on the back of his head. Like, what is all that about? <laughs> that one that bothers me for some reason. That was but uh, it's a very pre Nelly. Tar- yeah, it's very well. It's a very Tarantino. Like he just throws shit in like that yeah. that, that, that that distracts you exactly. Yeah. Uh, Fabian has this line. It's unfortunate how what is pleasing to the eye and pleasing to the touch is I seldom loved, the same. Loved that line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a good line. Yeah, I don't have much to say about her. She was, she's well, pleasant. I think we already kind of talked yeah. about her. She she has a very um, warm demeanor and like she she brings some kind of I don't know humanity to the film to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I do have like one big topic still to talk about to end this off, but I want to just go through. Um, some of the kind of pulp fiction feelings of it to uh to say what is, is so fun about this movie. And I think probably what's so memorable and fun is the conversations. Yes. So like Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, their conversations, Vince and Jules, Butch and Fabian. What the conversations show and and the fact that Tarantino even puts them in, like these rambling, unconnected conversations it's an example of what I would call the design space of creativity available to people. So what's so interesting about Pulp Fiction is that it's, it it really shows how similar so many movies are to each other, (laughs) right? Like we know the beats, we know what's coming. We know the first, second, third act, like the way that the out of time sequence really messes with even like a general standard narrative. Right. 
And I just wanted to riff on this idea of design space in the creative world. And a design space is something that comes from like evolution. Even I remember, I think it was in his book, Nicholas Christakis talking about how the design, the design space of a mollusk is really interesting to see. Um, Cause he was actually writing a book called blueprints on um, why human societies are remarkably similar across the globe compared to what they could be and so the good way to think of design space is just anything something could be not what it is right 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 what is and i think it's like a more common term now than computer science christakis's argument is that based on all the different ways humans could interact with each other the way that they actually do even though they seem so different from each other are so similar compared to like what they could be what they could be if you took every single possible iteration of the way society could be and i i'm applying this to pulp fiction i think so awesomely sticks in our minds because it's such a divergence into creative design space of what a movie could be yes right like this is we talked about this a little bit at the beginning like i don't think any movies ever this was the first movie that even was like it was incomparable when it came out yeah what movie would you compare pulp fiction to when it came out i don't think there was any right well, and that's because tarantino is such a lover of cinema like he he watches movies all day long, every day, and he understands the genre potentially better than any other director. I mean, yeah. maybe that's a little bit of a, a stretch, but yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to plant, again, the idea of design space. Because I think since so much of what could exist is hidden because it doesn't exist, it's hard to think about it that way. Yeah, And, and then the danger of that is that when things start going very different in your world in some aspect and it could potentially be like a really bad thing it's harder to conceive of because you've never seen it before right yeah <laughs> right yeah. i'm not sure if this is scientifically accurate but at my work we say learning is 85 percent experience which my experience with humans is that's probably true but that still means there's 15 percent available mm. to people that isn't experiential and i think the talk of design space would be a really important concept to reintroduce into the lives of young people i like that the opening song is really iconic long before the black eyed peas <laughs> you yep, know i yep. i feel like uh now most people would hear that beginning of pulp fiction and think it was the black eyed peas song was playing but other way around yeah other way around <laughs> yep. the music the songs in this the son of a preacher man song i know yeah uh it's so getting so some awesome. elvis in there the cinematic greatness of Jackrabbit Slims, like yeah. that whole like love letter to the fifties kind of thing. Yeah, in that scene is is awesome. Uh, the intensity of the overdose scene is incredible. Hey, yeah, it's just it's like I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, holy cow! <laughs> I thought it was funny when um, Honey Bunny and Pumpkin were collecting wallets because of all the cash. I was like, oh man, in twenty twenty they would get almost no cash. I, know. <laughs> I was thinking that too. It's like, oh. But I guess if cards were tapped, they could go make purchases for under a hundred dollars easily. Yeah. Well, probably those people would all call their banks as soon as their wallet was. It's, sure, it doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah, they'd have to take their phones. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, that, that would be worth. Yeah, that'd be a haul. I thought that was that was great. And then um, this just kind of dovetails dovetails into the last kind of big point. I would want to make and I think this is I hope this is interesting to you there's this line so when you know the scene where Butch is in the taxi and what Maria Lopez or Villa Lopez or whatever her name is and at the end he asks like oh is that 
Mexican or something. And she says she, it's Spanish, she but says, it's Colombian. The name is Spanish, but I am Colombian. You know, and uh, my note is she's patient with the microaggression. <laughs> Ah, now this right. is a this is a bit of a jokey way too. Um, I think I brought him up before on the podcast. There's this guy named David Brin who is a science fiction writer and a scientist. He's written some nonfiction books too, and he's a bit of a quirky character. You know, take him or leave him. But he said something that was so interesting to me one time, and he said, you know, I think it was in a book. I don't think it was in a speech. But it was like it would be nice if every now and again, free speech gave us something worth having. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, and that really resonates with me because, again, yeah, like, it's pretty exhausting to always be defending, you know, Nazis or, like, the scum of your yeah <laughs> society under the principles of, you know, John Stuart Mill or Thomas Paine or something like that. So um, I'm trying to champion, at some point, the concept of free speech worth having or, like, the form of free speech that justifies why it's a principle, like why we need it kind right, of thing. Right. Why, what, which person uses Prometheus fire to go explore and to warm and to illuminate, down, not burn yeah. things down. And my submission, and this is probably unsurprising given the podcast we do, is I think fiction is free speech worth defending, right? And I would submit Pulp Fiction as a movie that is a good candidate for modern censorship. I think this is a perfect movie for modern activists to try to shut down. Yep. Here's a couple of examples. There are many, many instances of the N-word in this movie, and Lance uses it, who's a white guy, and he also implies black people wouldn't know good drugs, Yep. which I'm not exactly (laughs) sure if that's an insult or not. (laughs) Jimmy, who is Tarantino's character, uses it often. Uh, the redneck uses it. Um, so it's it's often, there's a line, too many Koreans who don't speak English. That's a microaggression. Yep. <laughs> so is that line with that woman? That might be woman. just straight up racism. Sure. Yeah, that could uh, be, that'd be a racist micro, comment. Yeah. And then this kind of jokey one is that uh, the gimp could potentially be a insensitive portrayal of gay kink culture. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, you're stereotyping. Not every underground redneck gay orgy has a gimp. Well, who are, or not even gay orgy. It seems to be some kind of like... Well, let's say it was even on the up and up. Right, right. right? You're stereotyping. <laughs> yeah. So I recently wrote an email to Very Bad Wizards on this very point, is that I, I think that um, this is a useful prediction. Like, this is a perfect movie for modern censors to go after, right? Modern woke censors. Because of its, what would you call, like, base level things that are not... <laughs> that euphemistically are called problematic mm-hmm. in our day and age, mm-hmm. right? So never mind that Pulp Fiction is one of the most creative movies of all time. Never mind that you and I were able to get out of it all the things we did about conscious and unconscious versus Jules and Vincent. Never mind that it's got this like vast artistic and aesthetic appeal to it. They say the N-word a couple times, you're canceled. Yeah. Right? Now why i'm trying to make it fiction is that i don't want to be exact like i don't want to be hyperbolic i'm not trying to defend richard spencer or you know louis farrakhan though i would for their speech i'm defending a nucleus of human achievement which is narrative right Mm -hmm. there's the same thing with huckleberry finn never mind that the entire point of huck finn is finding the humanity 
in the sleigh in in Jim the the runaway slave never mind that it's all about overcoming your prejudice because of your humanity they use the n-word so canceled right and so it's like i'm giving a preemptive pushback to the unreflected base level critique that a mindless ideologue would have and i'm predicting in the near future pulp fiction will be a perfect candidate for that censorship and it's very similar to i think we brought it up i brought it up in the star wars episode people think that the gold bikini is just pure objectification of carrie fisher right yeah. like it's not even in the narrative it's like well no you just you had you just threw it you in just there. threw it in there's like never mind that it's entirely there to demonstrate why jabba the hutt is such a lecherous villain and why we should hate him right Never mind that it's a couple layers deeper than you're willing to go to. Well, my, <laughs> and I'm a pretty genial person, so keep that in mind. I want to say, like, you're invited to fuck off. <laughs> uh, you would be censors of fiction. It's free speech worth defending that I always will because a movie like Pulp Fiction or a book like Huck Finn goes way deeper than you clearly are able to think. Well, this so goes, this so goes back fuck to, off. <laughs> this goes back to our very early part of the conversation this is just religion man yeah that's all it is yeah it's this it's the human tendency to want to have control over other people <laughs> that's all it is yeah and it's 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 just changed from the from the catholic church to the to the woke mob i i find myself humored by the fact that i get more worked up over protecting <laughs> stories <laughs> than i do like things in my own life yeah <laughs> Yeah. It's like the nucleus I won't let go of kind of thing. But I think it's actually because stories are so important to your own life. Well, of course. And but the, because they're so much deeper, yeah. right? Like if you want to censor American History X because you actually like there is I mean, that's a movie we did. The main character has a large swastika tattooed on his pec, on his pectoral muscle, right? The unreflected reaction to that is Oh, swastika bad, cancel, right? We can't even see that. But this is exactly the same tendency that, that you know, South Park was attacking that you brought up multiple times before in kind of the no swearing in movies or, right. you know, art being restricted by puritanical norms. These are puritanical norms. I know. They're just... On the on a different, I mean, the religion has changed, and the high priests have changed, and mm. but but it's all exactly the same. Yeah. Well, I guess that is fundamental. Like, break things down to first principles: freedom or enslavement. Yeah. Right? Well, I, tyranny I, or democracy. Like, it, I guess I'm just trying to like plant a specific flag for a specific movie. <laughs> right. The people who would hate it because it it just uses a word that we're not. That isn't allowed to be used anymore. Yeah, it's heterodox. Yeah, and just how, like, even the way that Butch is originally with Fabian is, like, a little bit um, domestically problematic, Yeah, right? Which, again, I hate the word problematic because it's a word to say you don't like something but offer no solutions, <laughs> right? Right. This is a bad thing, I think, for the day that it ever is Pulp Fiction under the sights of the crosshairs of the censors. You'll be there defending it. Well, it's just <laughs> yeah. because it's too easy to predict, Yeah. right? Yeah. And um, I think the deepest point to be made there is, like, this movie is such a contribution to the history of art and for anyone who can think more deeply than the than the epidermal 
but then the what is it epidermal is that the outside layer of skin whatever whoever yeah. can think beyond the most superficial layer of something is ex- is exactly someone who understands narrative yeah and storytelling and the importance of them so never mind the baby in the bathwater. we're we're being asked to throw out a hundred babies to save to, to, to save to, the bathwater. to save the bathwater, <laughs> or like i don't even know exactly it's such a messed up metaphor like Get rid of a hundred babies because there's a there's a half ounce of bathwater in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And again, the whole point is how stupid those people seem to be. Right. Like the butt of the joke in Star Wars is Jabba, not Leia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The butt of the joke in Huck Finn are the slave catchers and the Duke and King, not Huck or Jim. No. Right. The butt of the joke in Pulp Fiction is well, it's a lot of people, I guess, but. Maybe everyone. Yeah. I mean, Pulp Fiction is a little different in that it's it's like meant to be art. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there in the world as a, I, I nominate Pulp Fiction for cancellation by the <laughs> censors of our world today. <laughs> well, don't nominate it. Just point out that it could happen. Well, I think it's a good candidate yeah. based on the logic or, you know, I use that word loosely. I would say Pulp Fiction is maybe not as far as we go, like the deepest movie, but it was very enjoyable to watch. It's again. always, yeah. Tarantino. That's the thing. Tarantino doesn't make them to be deep. Yeah. They no, may and end up sometimes being deep. And they're infinitely rewatchable. Yeah. It's very easy to rewatch almost every Tarantino film. Good entertainment. Yeah, exactly. So just want to remind you that if you like really true fiction, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify, uh, Android. I think we're on, we even are on Ghana, the number one Indian podcast uh, podcast yeah. site so subscribe leave a rating and review if you like find us on facebook you can send us an email at really at gmail.com also check out uh, nothing to fear podcast with me alex and billy if you like horror movies and happy one year david ha- happy one year luke <laughs> so yeah this has been another episode of really true fiction uh, my name is luke mason and my name is david parker may the force be with you may the force be with you